0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The Equal Rights Amendment is on the cusp of being adopted into the Constitution if the Senate gets their shit together. It's the product of more than a century of work, of women and allies. And I've invited my friend Julie Sook, author of the new book, We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, on to talk about the history of this movement. Passing an equal rights amendment would for the first time in our country's history, open a pathway toward true gender equality. Developing right now history on the Illinois House floor.
1: SJRCA4 having received the Constitution, it's adopted. By a vote of
0: 72 to 45, the House passed the Equal Rights Amendment. One more state to
1: 38. Yesterday, all these years later, Virginia's legislature voted to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment making it the 38th state to do so. That means three quarters of all states have ratified as the constitution requires. Hi, I'm Julie Sook. I'm fighting for the constitution we deserve in the 21st century. Sorry, not sorry. Julie, thank you so much for being here with
0: us on the Sorry Not Sorry podcast. So I'm just going to dive right in. We often start talking about America by talking about the founding fathers. That includes John Adams. But I want to talk about his wife, Abigail, who was a revolutionary in her own right. Tell us a little bit about her and how she figures into the fight for
1: the Equal Rights Amendment. Well, she said, remember the ladies. And it's so interesting that for a woman during the founding era, there weren't a lot of places where you could say, remember the ladies. And she said it in a letter to her husband, a private document, although now it's so often quoted as we think about women's rights. And she said it to her husband as he was on his way to the Continental Congress that would then lead to the Declaration of Independence. She knew that eventually there would be a declaration and that they would have to rewrite the laws for the new republic that was going to emerge from all of that. And she said, Remember the ladies, do not put too much power in the hands of husbands. And she said that if women were not remembered, they would eventually foment a rebellion. And What she was saying was really, she had sort of imbibed the revolutionary atmosphere. She was making the same kinds of arguments that her husband and the revolutionary men were making against the King of England. If we're not represented, if we don't have rights, you have no right to rule over us. It was the exact same argument. She was saying that if women did not have rights, men would have no right to rule over them and there would be a rebellion. And of course, we did get a rebellion in the form of the women's rights movement. It was a little bit different from the American Revolution because it was a rebellion that was made with words and arguments rather than with guns. And if you make an argument while being excluded from politics with words and law and arguments, it takes a lot longer than
0: it would take. <laughs> Apparently it does, as we are still fighting to be a part of the Constitution. I th- I think my next question is, why do you think that John Adams and the other men leading this new nation excluded
1: women from the Constitution? Well, he actually wrote back to that letter and he kind of mocked her and said that they were not ready for the despotism of the petticoat. And that's to say, at the time, they also just believed that women had their own power in their own sphere. Women ruled the home. And this was inscribed in every part of the legal system. Married women, in particular, didn't have any rights. They couldn't own their own property. If they actually worked, which they usually couldn't, but if they managed to, they didn't even own their own earnings because only the husband had legal rights. And it was assumed that the husband represented all the other members of the family, including the wife and the children, in the public sphere. This was so natural and part of the legal order that nobody questioned. And it was assumed that this was a legal order that actually worked to women's benefit because they could stay home and focus on the family. They didn't have to dirty themselves or stress themselves out with the work of being part of the economy and part of politics.
0: So the next step in Abigail's revolution comes in the middle of the 19th century in Seneca Falls. Will you just explain to my listeners
1: what happened there? So, of course, leading up to Seneca Falls, after the American Revolution, there were plenty of women who organized in churches, and some of the women had joined the abolition movement, and it was even part of the abolition movement that women who were part of that movement began to question women's bondage in marriage and lack of freedom, which is not to say it was exactly the same as slavery, but I think certainly the notion that some human beings had rights and others didn't was a very important point that led up to the Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls. I think we tend to think that Seneca Falls is a very significant moment because it produced a document and it produced a document that mirrored the language of the Declaration of Independence. It said that all men and women were created equal And it was very specific about the grievances, about the abuses of power by men that mirrored the language of the Declaration of Independence in terms of the grievances against the King of England and the importance of being part of the system that makes the laws that we then have to obey. Democracy, not just as a political system, but democracy within the family as well.
0: And then after the Civil War... We had Reconstruction with a flurry of amendments to the Constitution. The 14th Amendment in particular is used by people who oppose the ERA when they say it makes it totally unnecessary. Can you tell us a little bit about why we need an ERA despite the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment?
1: Well, the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, and it says that no person shall be denied equal protection of the laws. There's a story about a white Unionist in the South whose support for newly freed Blacks angers his neighbors. They come over one night and basically tell him to shut up. When he refuses, they take him outside, tie him to a tree, and horsewhip him. And they tell him if they have to come back again, they're going to hang him from that same tree. But the man had nowhere to turn, because the South at this time was a place of lawless tyranny. The 14th Amendment was designed to stamp out that tyranny by requiring government officials to respect the basic civil rights of all Americans. It doesn't just say men, at least in the first clause of the 14th Amendment. But strangely, in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, that was the first time ever in constitutional history in the United States that the framers of that amendment used the word male. And they were just describing what would happen if you disenfranchised some of the formerly enslaved. And they only talked about male voters. So it was very clear from the text of the 14th Amendment that those who adopted it and ratified it were not really thinking of women as voters or equal participants in our political system. And this was also tested shortly after the 14th Amendment went into effect women tried to vote claiming that they had equal rights under the 14th amendment, but they were turned away and even prosecuted for attempting to vote. And that's why they believed that they needed the 19th amendment, but then the 19th amendment, which is a struggle that took decades, finally ratified, but only speaks to the right to vote, not to be denied or abridged on account of sex, doesn't speak to all the other rights that exist in our legal and political order, including the right to own property, the right to have power over your own children as a parent, the right to control your own earnings, the right to work, the right to sue and be sued. These are all things that were restricted under state law around the time that the ERA was introduced in 1923. And that's how the idea of the ERA really gets started. But it changes over time, largely because women fought so hard. Women were smart enough to realize that they could assert their rights under the 14th Amendment, and they did. That was led by Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a lawyer, Polly Murray, who was a pioneering civil rights attorney. They made arguments under the 14th Amendment and won some of them, but they did not win everything that they sought to win under the 14th Amendment. There were still Supreme Court decisions in the 1970s that said if you discriminate against women because they're pregnant... That's not sex discrimination. That's not unconstitutional. There are many laws that Congress adopted saying that they were going to promote gender equality by, for example, combating violence against women. And the Supreme Court said that the 14th Amendment's powers did not reach that far. So those are the, some, some of the reasons now, which are different from the reasons that were given 100 years ago as to why an Equal Rights Amendment is still so vital and necessary. And
0: logic would just tell us if we didn't get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment safe to say that the 14th Amendment, which came so much earlier, did not include women. I don't think they were thinking about our rights before they were giving us our right to vote, which came five amendments later, which is the thing that I always say. I'm like, really, you think we got our rights during the 14th Amendment, but we couldn't vote until the 19th Amendment? None of that makes sense. And people go, oh, yeah, okay." And it's so amazing to me how few people realize that women don't have specific protections in the Constitution. I find so much of my time fighting for the ERA is just educating the public on not only what it is, but that we don't have equal protections in the Constitution. So what happened between Reconstruction and suffrage? In most history classes, this is basically like a historical wasteland that is often overlooked. But is that really how it was? No,
1: because... A very important case gets decided shortly after the 14th Amendment goes into effect. A woman named Myra Bradwell passes the bar exam in Illinois and tries to become a lawyer. I'm standing up today to talk about a woman who has had a significant impact on my career and the women's equality movement as a whole, Myra Bradwell. She was born in Vermont, but her family moved to Schaumburg when she was 12. She and her husband eventually settled in Chicago. She began her legal career apprenticing as a lawyer in her husband's office and assisting in research and legal writing. In 1868, Bradwell founded the Chicago Legal News, a widely circulated paper that published information about court opinions, laws, and court ordinances. How'd that go? (laughs) It didn't go so well because the Illinois Supreme Court said, that married women couldn't be lawyers because what if she tried to represent a client and the client wasn't happy and wanted to sue her? Well, married woman could not be sued because she was represented in all legal matters by her husband. So that would be a problem. And so the Supreme Court says that it's fine for Illinois to decide to exclude married women from the legal profession. And eventually, Illinois changed its laws about that. But the Supreme Court said that she didn't have any rights under the 14th Amendment to be admitted to the legal profession. What became really clear in 1873, when that case was decided, that the 14th Amendment really didn't protect women's rights to work. Another case shortly after that, called Minor v. Happersett, confirmed that women didn't get the right to vote under the 14th Amendment. A really interesting thing happens, though, around this exact same period which is that women start organizing against domestic violence. And the way that it's expressed in our constitutional history is that they start complaining about drunk husbands and saloons. So they're organizing for what eventually becomes the Prohibition Amendment, which gets added to the Constitution right before suffrage. But it's really amazing because these women started talking about some of the issues that are still with us today, like domestic violence, and they said, we need constitutional change. And they needed constitutional change because the saloons fought back. They fought back against these women by saying, we have business and property rights to operate as we please. So if these women come and protest on our property, we could throw them off. And so a lot of these constitutional conflicts and women organizing come about around these issues. And that's when women start saying, well, maybe we need to change the constitution. If the men are going to say, and the saloons, the big businesses are going to say, we have constitutional rights, how about if we prohibit alcohol and get women's rights to vote and other rights so that we can have a say in how our lives go? And that is a very important part of the story as well. We often don't think about prohibition because it was also the only amendment that was repealed. And it was repealed also because women eventually organized against it because it was very intrusive in terms of the way that prohibition was enforced. But women played a very important role in those amendments. And I think their experience in organizing around those amendments bled over into the movements for suffrage and other women's rights both within the family and in the public sphere.
0: We've mentioned the suffrage movement numerous times, but I wanna just take a moment and give you the opportunity to tell the listeners, how did women finally get the right to vote? Who were some of the leaders and how were they successful?
1: So there were so many amazing women, and I'm just going to highlight a few. Alice Paul, who was the head of the National Women's Party. And she was one of the younger women in the movement by the time that the amendment was ratified in 1920. Alice Stokes Paul was a leading figure in the fight for women's
0: right to vote in America. Born in 1885 at her family's farm in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, she dedicated her life to working for legally protected
1: gender equality. A lot of the women who were at Seneca Falls or worked so hard in the 19th century were dead by the time the 19th Amendment was ratified. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, they were dead by the time we got to both houses of Congress, passing the 19th Amendment and sending it out to the states for ratification in 1919. And Alice Paul was a very important figure because she really upped the ante in terms of strategy and tactics. She had big parades and picketed the White House, hunger strikes. And I think that was very important. Carrie Chapman-Catt, who was one of the older women by the time that the amendment was ratified, and she testified before Congress and so much of what she did. And I think it was important, even though in retrospect, it didn't matter as much as she thought it would, although it's important to the ERA story today. She made sure there was no seven-year deadline on the 19th Amendment. A lot of the opponents wanted to put a deadline in. I bet they did. Deadlines are really useful for opponents because then they could just keep delaying without going on record as being against women's rights. It's a familiar political tactic even today with the filibuster. It's a way of saying, let's just keep talking about it for longer and longer instead of saying, I actually oppose something that all the people want. Because if you say that, you'll get voted out of office Were there any amendments in the Constitution
0: that had these arbitrary time limits that weren't on women's rights?
1: It depends on what you think of as being about women's rights. So there was the Child Labor Amendment, which did not have a deadline. And the Child Labor Amendment was really about giving Congress the power to regulate or to limit the use of children in the workplace, like in factories. And that was actually something that social reformers, largely women like Florence Kelly, really fought for. And so you could think of the child labor amendment as something that women really lobbied for. But I think women were very attuned to the importance of time and had a different sense of how long things took to get things done. Because really, if you're excluded from rights, especially the right to vote, it's much harder to get the right to vote without the right to vote. And it takes a very long time. And I think it explains why the 19th Amendment is a multi generational achievement, just like the ERA, when it finally gets added to the Constitution, will most certainly have been a multi generational achievement.
0: So 1923-ish, right, is the time the Equal Rights Amendment was drafted or presented? It was actually introduced in Congress in 1923. So introduced in Congress in 1923, written
1: by Alice Paul. Well, I think it was the National Women's Party. And I think Alice Paul did get help from, I mean, Alice Paul actually started going to law school right around the time that she was working on the ERA. But there were more seasoned women lawyers, although there weren't a lot of women lawyers, in part because of the Supreme Court decision that I mentioned a few minutes ago. But Crystal Eastman who was a very brilliant graduate of NYU Law School and part of the National Women's Party advised on the drafting of the Equal Rights Amendment. On March 25, 1911, an unstoppable inferno ripped through the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in the Greenwich Village section of New York City. Locked exit doors and inoperable fire escapes contributed to the death of 146 workers, mostly young immigrant women. When the bodies of young girls are found piled against locked doors, wrote attorney and labor activist Crystal Eastman, we don't want relief funds. What we want is to start a revolution. Bernita Matthews was with the National Women's Party and frequently testified before Congress about what it would do as law and why it was needed. So these women worked as part of the National Woman's Party to put forth the amendment in 1923.
0: So the obvious question is, why in the world has it taken more than 100 years to get it through the ratification and adoption process?
1: So many explanations. I'll start with one, which is Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. That is the article that we should be focusing on when we teach kids Civics and the Constitution in school. But it's an article that I think nobody really thinks about and talks about. It's the article that says that you need two thirds of both houses of Congress and three fourths of the state legislatures to amend the Constitution. The founding fathers made the Constitution very difficult to amend. And they made it difficult to amend in part because they were having a lot of conflicts about the future of slavery in America. And you see that written into Article 5 as well. Because the one thing that they made unamendable was the slave trade until 1808. And they also made it so that there was a separate, even harder rule to change the equal representation of the states in the Senate. And that was deliberate because they wanted to make sure that a lot of these slaveholding states maintained a certain proportion of seats in the national legislature. And I think the two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-fourths of state legislatures was also designed so that you'd have to have a very strong consensus in order to change anything in the Constitution. And if you look at what that means today, like we have 50 states, and that means that if you have 13 states that are against a constitutional amendment, it's not going to pass. And that really means that the former slaveholding states have veto power over any constitutional amendment that we try to pass today. And then, if you also think about Congress, two thirds of Congress, we're so polarized that it's like even more impossible than the founding fathers imagined back then. But I think that's the primary explanation as to why the US does not have an ERA, whereas most constitutions in the world do. <laughs>
0: I want you to say that last sentence again. Most constitutions in the world. Most
1: constitutions in the world have an equal rights amendment that protects the equal rights of women. Let me ask you this. What countries do not have
0: an equal rights amendment in their constitution?
1: The U.S. doesn't have one. You know, it's really hard for me to name any other country uh, that doesn't.
0: Interesting. Interesting, isn't it, that we are... The only modern industrialized nation that doesn't have an equal rights amendment in our constitution. So we talked about 1923, the ERA was introduced, and then there's kind of like this gray area until the passage of the ERA through Congress in the 1970s. First of all, what was happening in between those two times? And second of all, what major figures in the 20th century leading up to the passage of the RA were instrumental
1: in getting it through Congress in the 70s? In the 1920s, when it was first introduced, it didn't really get off the ground. And there are many explanations for that. An important one is that not all of the advocates for women's rights were totally in support of the ERA. The politics were very difficult because you had a very conservative pro-business Supreme Court. And this conservative pro-business Supreme Court at around this time was striking down any kind of labor law that was good for working people. And in response to that, the social reformers got some laws passed that were specifically protective of women workers. So minimum wages and maximum hours for women only. And the Supreme Court didn't strike those down. They just figured since women can't even vote, they might as well have some extra protection under the law. So there were laws that were very good for working class women, but they were for women only. And some of the social reformers believed that the courts, if they got an ERA, would use it against working class women. And until the courts were going to change, they were going to oppose giving the courts more power by giving them another amendment that they could play with. So that was the real story. But everything shifted around the time of the New Deal because the court changed and the court started to be more friendly to labor legislation. In 1938, the very first federal minimum wage was set at 25 cents an hour when Franklin Roosevelt signed the Fair Labor Standards Act. The wage is not tied to the rate of inflation, so it only goes up through congressional action. And 22 times since 1938, Congress and the president have worked together to raise it. So then people weren't so worried anymore about the judges rejecting labor laws. And I think that, in combination with World War II, which led to the UN Charter and the UN Declaration on Human Rights, the UN Charter explicitly says that equal rights between women and men is a fundamental principle. And that was very important to the drafting of many constitutions in Europe after the war. Most of the constitutions that are operative in other countries were written in the 20th century or the 21st century, not the 18th century during slavery. And that's a very important factor in understanding why, when they began, the idea that women should have equal rights was as important as having free speech or prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment or torture, you know, those kinds of things. Whereas I think in the United States, because we have the oldest constitution in the world, like everyone else is driving a car and we're still on the horse and buggy
0: constitution.
1: That's the problem. And it's a problem that manifests itself in many legal arenas, not just gender equality.
0: So flash forward to the 1970s, and the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment through Congress. Who was instrumental in making that happen after so long? Because now we're talking 50 years
1: after it was originally introduced. Part of the reason, even after World War II, you don't get an ERA passed by Congress in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, is that there were only men on the House Judiciary Committee. And the chair, who had been the chair every time the Democrats were in power, Emmanuel Seller, was just vehemently opposed to women's rights and to the ERA. So he didn't let it get out of committee. they never got a vote, even though there was rising support for it. And so Martha Griffiths, who was a congresswoman from Michigan, she had to do something a little out of the ordinary because the Judiciary Committee wasn't going to send it to the floor for a vote. So she spent the summer in 1970. This was like the 50th anniversary of women's right to vote. She spent the summer just cornering everybody in the House, getting their signature on a discharge petition, because a discharge petition, if you get half the House to sign it, it means you could discharge the Judiciary Committee of their responsibility over a bill, and you could just send it to the floor regardless of what the Judiciary Committee chair wants. And that's what she had to do. She spent months getting every single person or half of her colleagues to sign it. And once she actually got it on the floor, 96% of her colleagues actually voted for the ERA. And it shows you that we have all these processes in Congress that delay and hold up things that are widely supported by the rest of Congress and by the American people. And so she got it off the ground through this extraordinary maneuver in 1970. But what's even more amazing is that there are a few guys in the Senate who didn't want the ERA. So they held it up in the Senate. They said, we need a deadline. (laughs) And they're few in number, fewer than 10 guys in the Senate who really hated and didn't want the ERA. And they use these procedural tactics. They're like, why doesn't it have a deadline? Can we just change some of the language to make it better? And that was their way of killing it, because if that's what happens a few weeks before an election, that means there won't be time to put together an amendment and vote on it. And so it died once in 1970. And when Martha Griffiths, she was very shrewd politically. So when she came back in 1971, after elections, she reintroduced it. And she just kind of put the deadline in, thinking that these very few guys who were really willing to be a pain about the ERA would be a little bit quieter and possibly even vote for it if it had a deadline in. And that was kind of a miscalculation, but she was actually very important in getting it passed for real in 1971 to 72, because well over 90% of the House and 84 to 8 in the Senate passed it in 1971 and 72. And there were only 10 women in Congress around this time. But very importantly, the first Asian-American woman ever to be elected to Congress, Patsy Takemoto-Mink from Hawaii, and Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman to be elected to Congress. They were both fierce proponents of the ERA. And what was also really important to the story was Republican women, Margaret Heckler from Massachusetts, Florence Dwyer from New Jersey. They all came together on the issue of the ERA. It wasn't a partisan issue.
0: We're seeing that the Republican women in the Senate now are being supportive of the Equal Rights Amendment and the bill that is in front of them with Murkowski and Collins just signing on as co-sponsors, which is great. As we're looking back at the story of the ERA, why is it so important to remember the women who fought for the ERA? And what does it tell us
1: about our present and where we can go from here? You said earlier that Some people think that we don't need the ERA because we have the 14th Amendment. And that's to say that some very creative and brilliant women use the 14th Amendment to get some women's rights and to get ERA ideas into the law that we now have. And in some ways, it's crazy to me that people say that's why we don't need the ERA, because that means that we're just making invisible the achievements of women For me, the biggest argument for the ERA is that women have been constitution makers, really dating back to Abigail Adams, but we don't call them founding mothers and we don't call them founding mothers because there isn't a piece of text you could point to in here that they wrote and made. And I think that in some ways, this is a lot like Shirley Chisholm famously said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring in a folding chair. I do not believe that in 1972, the great majority of Americans will continue to harbor such narrow and petty prejudices. I am convinced that the American people are in a mood to discard the politics and the political personalities of the past. Women have been bringing in folding chairs for two centuries, but it's really time for them not to be sitting on a folding chair anymore. And I think the Equal Rights Amendment, having an explicit textual provision, that recognizes women as constitution makers, and then is a foundation for more work that needs to be done on real equality for women. We need more than a folding chair. We need something permanent and something that is strong and lasting.
0: let's just talk about where we are now. We have 38 states who have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, and it really just needs Congress to remove the ridiculous deadline that it imposed for it to become law. How are you feeling about that? Do you think it's going to happen?
1: I think it is eventually going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen in this particular Congress. I think it's shameful that at this point, a majority of the American people A strong majority of the American people and a bare majority of our members of Congress support the removal of the deadline. And the thing that's stopping it, it's been passed twice now by the House. And in the Senate, I believe there are 50 or 52 votes to pass it. But because of the parliamentary procedures in the Senate, namely the filibuster, we have a de facto supermajority 60-vote rule to get anything done in the Senate. And unless we get rid of the filibuster, we really can't pass legislation through the Senate right now with only 50, 52, just anything under 60 votes.
0: I want to know who the men are who are against this. Obviously, we need to pass it. But to me, we need to see, much like we were able to see when it passed through Congress, lifting the deadline passed through Congress, that there were only four Republicans that voted for that bill. So I want to know who in the Senate is against women having equality in our Constitution, and I want to know that so we can choose not to vote for them, so we could choose not to do business with them, so we can choose not to continue to propel their careers of capitalism and misogyny forward. It's so important to me that we know who in this day and age is not for women's rights?
1: Well, unfortunately today, it's become a very partisan issue. So I would say most Republicans in both the House and the Senate, including many Republican women, have been voting against equal rights for women in the Constitution. And they've been voting against it because the issue has been politicized. It's the same way that Phyllis Schlafly in the mid-1970s, worked so hard to defeat ERA ratification as the time limit was coming up. Many are saying that they support equal rights for women, but they believe that the ERA is not actually about equal rights. They believe that the ERA is about a specific leftist Democratic Party agenda. And I don't think that is necessarily true. The ERA is what we make it. This is a democracy. So if we're going to make a constitutional amendment, everyone who supports it has a say in what it means for women to have equal rights. And we're not always going to agree on the best way to realize equal rights for women, but that's what democracy is for. We're going to debate about it. We're going to compromise on certain policies. And in every constitutional amendment that we have, like freedom of speech or freedom of religion, we don't agree 100% of the time as to what that actually means in practice. But it doesn't mean that just because we disagree about what it means, we shouldn't have it as a fundamental principle in our constitution.
0: Yeah, we're real good at politicizing issues that should not be political. Things like gun violence prevention, things like women's rights, things like a humane immigration system, reforming the criminal justice system, all these things that really are about human beings and how we should humanely treat other human beings seem to be politicized. And I'm really growing very weary of it. I just feel like everything that we fight for, if you strip away the politics of it and had a conversation with someone who you would think would be on an opposing side, and you said to them, like, do you think women should have equal rights? They would say yes.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think we have to remember the ladies (laughs) from the early 1970s because the Republican women and the Democratic women One issue on which they really converged was they recognized that women face disadvantages in the labor market and in politics because they were mothers, historically. At the present time, only about 61% of the jobs in this country are covered by the Equal, Equal Pay Act. There are many government jobs that are not covered. The Equal Rights Amendment will affect those government jobs that are not now covered by the Equal Pay Act. Also, the Equal Rights Amendment, in regard to all of the laws, has a sense of reinforcing the principle that is behind those laws. It gives recognition to the fact that this society does mean, in fact, that we shall not differentiate and distinguish and discriminate on the basis of sex in the areas of jobs and employment and opportunity. And of course, women were excluded from being lawyers and from voting, allegedly, because how could they do those things if they were mothers? And I think that's an important theme even today because I think there's much more agreement than we often realize on the issue of motherhood. I think Republicans are family-friendly and Democrats are family-friendly, and we all understand that becoming a mother should not ruin your life, should not be an economic disaster. And I think there's increased support for that proposition with Republicans like Mitt Romney supporting child tax credits or subsidies for parents, I think that's one issue, one source of inequality for women on which there's actually a lot of agreement. But you know what that turns into. That turns into
0: the pro-life conversation, how enforced pregnancy enforced motherhood. So, yes, I agree that there are people from both sides of the aisle that are elected officials that can find a nugget of commonality. But when you look at what those things in common sort of lead to as far as social commentary and conversations, we couldn't be further apart. I'm a little
1: bit more optimistic because on the one hand, when we say pro-life, we tend to focus a lot on the right to terminate a pregnancy, which is important. But what's also pro-life is making sure that people who choose motherhood do not face economic hardship or dangerous working conditions. So blue states and red states have passed Pregnant Worker Fairness Acts. And we have a federal piece of legislation, the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act, which just means that if you're a pregnant worker, you deserve certain accommodations on the job to avoid negative health effects or unwanted miscarriages on the job. And that's something that I think Republicans have supported, at least in the House, although we'll see if the Senate also passes it in this term. I think that's one issue where... If we had an ERA, it would be really clear that pregnant worker fairness is an important principle of government. It'll be something that we would have a constitutional foundation for passing that legislation on the federal level. And it is something that I think that people across the political spectrum agree on. And I think we need to find, because of the constitutional rule that requires so much consensus to change the constitution... It's so important for us to see that the things that women need, particularly after this pandemic, in order to be equal, are things that people across the political spectrum can support.
0: You're a lot more optimistic than I am on these issues, because as you mentioned, red and blue states passed worker rights for women. There's been so many red states in the last five years that have put up really unconscionable heartbeat bills. They're basically forced pregnancy bills. I want to believe that one of these things does not lead into another, but it just to me means how desperate we are for the Equal Rights Amendment. What do you think the next generation of Abigail Adams will be fighting for? Who are the new revolutionaries? Well, Lissa, you mentioned
1: the heartbeat bills, and those are happening because of who controls the state legislatures. And I don't believe that the state legislatures that are passing those bills are necessarily representative of the people who live in those states. But they are
0: representative of the people that vote in the people who sit in those state legislatures.
1: Yes, but these are the same state legislatures that are now also passing what are essentially voter suppression laws to entrench their power. Look at a state, for example, like Georgia, which also passed a heartbeat bill in 2019, which the courts have been enjoining all of them in any case. But if you look at a state like Georgia and what happened in the election with Georgia, both Senate seats going blue and the state going to Biden and Harris on the presidential. And you look demographically how the state is changing. Asian Americans are one of the largest growing demographic groups. It's not just Georgia. Many states, I think, if you actually got people to vote and didn't suppress the vote, there might be potential for transforming some of the state legislatures. And I think that's what we need to be focused on. And I think the young generation, and particularly the groups that are focused on the ERA, Generation Ratify, for example, I think they are broadly minded, not only about women's rights, but the importance of being involved in making sure that they're represented and active in democracy. So I think the next generation will really be about starting at the local level. Making sure that state legislatures are representative and making sure that they don't pass laws that entrench their power by limiting the right to vote, by limiting the ways in which marginalized people often do vote, whether it's by mail or in certain localities that have been disfavored.
0: There have been 200 bills that have passed state houses that will directly impact black and brown communities and their voting rights. And Georgia is one of those. As soon as you mentioned Warnock and Ossoff and Stacey Abrams, who I believe won her election, it went for Biden. But as soon as that happened, they passed a really restrictive bill. So we have to and I think there's a lot of incredible grassroots organizations really doing deep canvassing throughout the country to educate and empower people on the importance of state and local elections. But all of this just points to really why we need the ERA. And my final question for
1: you is what gives you hope? What gives me hope is seeing all the women who were in the state legislatures in Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia just in the last three or four years who picked up an ERA that people had forgotten about and ratified it. It was so bold. And it was not clear whether it would be accepted as legitimate, but they fought for it. They didn't just fight for the ERA. They fought for pregnant worker fairness. They fought for breastfeeding rights in the workplace. They fought for the rights of domestic violence victims to show that the ERA, it's not just about getting words in the constitution. It's about empowering women politically to make the world better for women through legislation as well. And that's something that was also really important to the women who were in Congress in the 1970s when they endorsed the ERA, because the ERA is not the end. It's actually just the beginning. And for us, if we can get the ERA into the Constitution, I think young people will understand that they can be part of a multi-generational effort to change the Constitution. And the Constitution can be changed we haven't had a constitutional amendment since 1992. I was 17. I was not old enough to vote in 1992. And I'm a middle-aged mom of two kids now, who are almost in a couple of years will be the age I was when we got the 27th Amendment. That amendment, by the way, the last amendment we had when I was 17, was written by James Madison in 1789. So I think we belong to a generation of people who have not really had this sense that we can change the Constitution and we should change the Constitution. There are so many things in the Constitution, including the Electoral College, that undermine democracy. There are things that we don't have that we need in order to make democracy work better, including the ERA. And what gives me hope is that how close we are to the ERA reminds people that we have a role to play in changing the constitution and making its meaning. And I believe that we'll do it. Well, Julie, you give me hope. Thank you
0: so much for being here and being a part of the podcast and for everything you do. My name is Alyssa Milano and I am here because women are not guaranteed equal justice under the law of our constitution. In 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment was first proposed by the National Women's Political Party. It stated that the amendment was to provide the legal equality of the sexes and prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. Almost 100 years later, and we are still fighting for equality. We are still fighting for this belief that equal means equal. Honor thy father and thy mother. It's the fifth commandment. It's right at the heart of the Abrahamic religions, and it's about damn time we started honoring our mothers. The work of changing the world doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's the product of generations, each one building on the successes and repairing the failures of those who came before. To be a great activist, you have to be reconciled with Feeling and being unfulfilled. You have to know that huge problems may not be fixed in your lifetime and that you may never see the fruits of your labor. But you do it anyway because you know there will eventually be a harvest. Well, it's harvest time. The many, many generations of women who fought tooth and nail for basic constitutional equality deserve our honor. The generations to come deserve our successes. And the scared men in the Senate standing in the way of equality for women need to sit down and get out of the way. Because the time is now. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and... Milo Bougiari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.